Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, We have a little bit different episode this week. I'm teaming up with Becky Winslow to kind of do a hybrid one since she also does a podcast as well. So I'm Eric Geyer, the political pharmacist. Becky, can you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thanks, Eric, for the introduction, and thanks for inviting me to discuss this current hot topic in pharmacogenomics. As Eric mentioned, I am Dr. Becky Winslow. I'm the host of the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. The PGX for Pharmacists podcast is part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You said I wanted you on here today because there's some big news in uh, pharmacogenomics or PGX for short. And one of the huge things that just got settled was a case in Hawaii with Plavix or Clopidogrel for the generic name. Can you kind of uh, discuss kind of what happened with that and with some of the outcomes? Sure. I'd love to talk about this subject. It's um, quite newsworthy and has stirred a lot of talk about pharmacogenomics and the future of pharmacogenomics. So. You're correct. Uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company and Sanofi, who are the manufacturers of Plavix, um, generic name Clopidogrel, have been ordered to pay over $834 million to the state of Hawaii after failing to warn about the drug's potential health risk to patients with combinations of CYP2C19 variants, which result in CYP2C19 poor metabolizer status. So what does all this mean? Clopidogrel is metabolized to its active metabolite by CYP2C19. And patients carrying CYP2C19 dysfunctional alleles have reduced or no conversion of clopidogrel to its active metabolite. So you can imagine that that puts them at an increased risk of cardiovascular events. So what did the judge say in this case? the companies were found to have violated Hawaii's consumer protection laws uh, by not disclosing that Plavix would be ineffective for as many as 30% of patients in Hawaii. That's a, that's a pretty big number there. That's, that's nothing you can really ignore when you're talking about 30% of people that are going to get this drug that at the time when it came out was kind of like a wonder drug, kind of changed the game for the, the, the clotting issues for many Americans. And 30% of the people, it's not going to work in. That's a huge percent of the population. And obviously, this isn't just limited to Hawaii. But why did Hawaii kind of win the case? Is it due to just kind of their demographic makeup? Exactly. So a large proportion of Hawaiians are Asian and uh, Pacific Islander descent. So it's quite common to find the no-function variant in the Hawaiian population. And, you know... The judge basically said that uh, Hawaiians were um, placed in danger because because Plavix manufacturers uh, did not um, disclose to the public that uh, serious injury or death could occur with patients that have those no functional ills that are taking Plavix. Yeah, so Hawaii wins $834 million, which is a large sum. Obviously, it doesn't replace the lives that were lost, but really it just makes the case for your specialty here, pharmacogenomics, and why 
some of these drug companies might need to start studying these things a little more, diving into it, and we might need to be utilizing these more as pharmacists and healthcare providers because we need to make sure the drugs we're giving people are effective. If you're talking a state like Hawaii where 30% of people, it's not going to be effective. There is no point of giving them that drug. We need to go on to something else that's going to actually work for them. So kind of what is your remedy or what do you kind of see that might help kind of fix this going forward since obviously the FDA's mission is to help protect the public from unsafe uh, medications? Sure. So it's kind of interesting um, to understand how this situation might play out in the future, you really have to consider who is responsible for protecting the public uh, from unsafe medications and medications that are non-therapeutic. We have state government, we have federal government. Are pharmaceutical companies the ultimate responsible party for protecting the public? Um, So let's just dive a little bit deeper into that concept. So we all know that the FDA is the federal body that's responsible for ensuring that medications are safe and therapeutic. Um, In this case, the state government sued. So what law or what regulation were they able to sue? Because the FDA, the federal government, is actually responsible for safe medications. And private manufacturers were answering to the FDA in the drug labels that they produced. They had to be approved. So the states actually used uh, consumer protection laws in this lawsuit because states do have those laws to protect their citizens. And this is not the first time that states have sued pharmaceutical manufacturers, drug distributors and such because their uh, state citizens were harmed from consuming medications. And Eric, you're right there in Ohio. You're very well aware of probably one of the most famous um, state uh, lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies uh, that happened right there in your state. Yeah, we had the kind of the amalgamation of all of the different lawsuits from the opioid trials here with uh, Purdue Pharma kind of come to a head and reach a settlement. And several states actually didn't agree to the settlement. And it's kind of been lurking forward, if you will, with some of that. But uh, back, I think it was in 2007, they originally settled with the federal government for, I think it was, uh, trying to go off the top of my head here, but it was several hundred million dollars. I believe it was $670 million. And even since then, Purdue kind of reviolated the things and got sued again and lost for several billion dollars. And now they're going to bankruptcy and they're looking into how the Sacklers are moving their money around. But that to digress for a second, kind of goes back to that they didn't reveal everything they knew to the FDA with this, mm-hmm. which is what we're looking at with the Plavix situation. And I think it's interesting yeah. that Hawaii specifically made the case because of their demographic makeup. And it makes you wonder if we're actually looking at the correct populations and testing people and things like that when we're doing some of these drug studies. Just because if you were to mm-hmm. do this in Ohio, we don't have the Asian makeup that, I mean, we do have Asian people in Ohio, mm-hmm. it's not that Hawaii does. So this could very easily go undetected, which is could have been what they did. I don't know. I I don't remember the plavix studies. That was before my time in pharmacy school. Uh, But this is kind of just begs the point of what you're talking about here. If they really need to make sure they're looking at it. And with all of the issues we've seen in the past, you know, 2020 into 2021, and obviously even before that about race issues in this country, this is one where 
it actually does matter. Your race and your makeup do matter because it matters on how you metabolize things. Now, not every Asian person can't metabolize Plavix, but it's just a higher risk of not being able to. And I remember when this came out in 2009 about the drug interaction with Plavix and Omeprazole and you know the whole world freaked out about because everyone's on these two drugs. Yeah. And really, it's only an issue with, uh, with certain populations as we're mm-hmm. seeing here. Uh, to your point. So I don't know if you want to elaborate on that at all, but I thought that was kind of like where this whole thing really jumped off. And then we started seeing some of these big sure. differences in pharmacogenomics with medications. Sure. Plavix uh, and its pharmacogenomics really were a major milestone in pharmacogenomics and really draw drew attention to the need for pharmacogenomics and drug labeling. Like you said, I was a hospital I was a hospital pharmacy director at the time that the um, news came out. And quite honestly, uh, I lived in a rural North Carolina town. I don't, we didn't have very many Asians in our, in our town. Uh, our biggest concern w- was let's just switch all patients to a different PPI that doesn't interact with plastics. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's one less concern that we have. So it was more of a blanket. You know, rather than, I don't even know, I don't think back then pharmacogenomics testing was even on our radar. But, you know, today and even before this Hawaii lawsuit, for example, the state of Ohio and its opioid um, prevention programs, even before Ohio won the settlement, back in 2019, Ohio was already incorporating or planning to incorporate pharmacogenomics testing into their opioid prevention programs. Yeah, so which is really great. cool because of when we're talking about yeah. drug addiction here and driving that down. So it's really using your your field to address yeah. a hot, not just political issue, but like issue that saves like 50,000 lives roughly every year around the U.S. Exactly. So um, pharmacogenomics is coming, I believe, you know, it's it's moving further. It's moving forward. Um, I hate that cases such as the Hawaii case have come out, but in my experience, sometimes um, money does drive um, the outcomes we need to see. Yeah. Uh, and and I should say penalties that involve money. Um, so, you know, that is definitely a a driver of of outcome changers. So um, the great news about uh, Ohio is that they are studying pharmacogenomics in patients, um, both opioid naive and opioid addicted, to try to compare them. And um, they're using some of the money that they were awarded. This is an example of how monies can drive the changes we need to see. So um, they're using some of those monies to fund this research. Well, and what's crazy about it is when you see a lawsuit for $834 million that obviously goes the way of the state that filed it, one, that is a lot of money. But two, that is nothing compared to how much money was made and spent on Plavix over the years since it came out and even the generic of it because it's been generic for a substantial Mm -hmm. time now. And so, yeah, that definitely moved the needle and that'll definitely open up some of the drug companies because – that's one mm-hmm. state. Who's to say California isn't next, which is a much bigger state right. that could easily pull off a similar lawsuit. And I think that's something mm-hmm. we're definitely going to see them looking at. We saw, 
you know, some of the things that they do, they try and get immunity with some of like the vaccination uh, drives, especially right. with COVID. But that kind of makes sense. It's a pandemic. It's a little different. But you're not going to, that's not going to stand up for when it comes to a drug or something like this. What you were talking about, though, was there was a large rate of specific populations that do not uh, metabolize buprenorphine correctly. Buprenorphine is the mm-hmm. active ingredient that's in drugs like Suboxone to help people who are trying to get, uh, overcome their addiction to things like opioids. Can you kind of discuss mm-hmm. what populations that's an issue with and what kind of you've heard and seen with that? Sure. So a study was published a few years back that looked at medication-assisted treatment for patients with opioid use disorder. And what they identified in that research study was that African Americans are uh, more likely to have a variant in CYP3A4 that causes them not to metabolize buprenorphine uh, effectively to, um, so that the drug works for them, in other words, so yeah. it's therapeutic. And what this was leading to was um, these uh, MAT patients being accused of uh, self-medicating. They were actually being discharged from the medication-assisted programs almost unfairly, really, because, you know, the people were there because they wanted to get better, but they were being treated with the medication that did not work for them. And uh, so they were using more of their buprenorphine. They're running out early, for example, uh, just because they wanted to stay sober, but their genetics were fighting against them unbeknownst to them. So, I mean, that's an example of how race, as in the social construct of race, <laughs> yeah. um, should not be used in medication therapy management. A doctor, a pharmacist, whomever, cannot look at a patient's skin and just because they are a certain color determine whether a medication will be effective for that patient or if it will cause adverse drug events. It really boils down to the genetics. And, and really what it does to me, and the kind of the way I interpret this is, especially if you're looking at something like this, if you know that Africans Amer- Americans are at higher risks of not metabolizing a drug like buprenorphine uh, appropriately, which I didn't know until you told me about it, to be honest. So this is not like a common knowledge thing. And I work yeah. with these type of patients all the time where I work. And so okay. I thought this was interesting because it, you know, if, if, and I don't know the exact numbers, you can correct me on this, but if it's 2% chance in someone like me who's white and a 30% chance in someone who's African American, I'm not going to necessarily worry about testing every white person unless they really have like an issue or I'm not seeing them succeed like you would expect. Okay. But I'm probably going to do it for somebody who's African American, mm-hmm. just because the rate is so high, I don't want them to fail treatment. I want them to get better. Mm-hmm. And if it's one in three people that you're catching it, as opposed to one in 50, there's a very big difference mm-hmm. of how many people's lives you're going to impact. And that's where pharmacogenomics can really Absolutely. come in and help with the treatment, whether you're picking a higher dose or lower dose or whatever it is, or even completely different medication at all, like we saw with completely uh, different. some of the people mm-hmm. who are uh, the Asian Americans who had issues with Plavix, which does happen in other populations, but to a much lower extent is that kind of mm-hmm. what what your thought was with a plan yeah. for like this yes yes so you know i just think back over my 
22 years of experience in pharmacy and um, the patients who were deemed opioid seekers or the patients who said, my pain medicine isn't working and, and my doctor doesn't believe me. You know, those were social um, social determinants that were put on people without considering their genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my hope for the future is is that we stop looking at what we think we see, and you know, and look deeper. One interesting thing about that is is that if I think back to like my practice of pharmacy, and I think back to maybe I was guilty of that for somebody that I was like, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, you're running yeah. out and I didn't know this. Mm-hmm. This is not the most common knowledge thing in pharmacy. You can't know everything when it comes to mm-hmm. pharmacy. There's just too deep of a field to really know every single thing. You can know a lot of it, but at the same point, you know, maybe if I would have known that and I would have had access to be able to do something like this at the pharmacy, we could have caught it or, you know, sent it to the doctor's mm-hmm. office or the doctor's office could have done it there if they were to, were aware of it, if they had a pharmaco- pharmacology expert like us in there. And then we could right. have a lot more people who wouldn't be frustrated, wouldn't get all kind of uh, go through all the mm-hmm. rings that we make people jump through to really kind of succeed when it comes to drug addiction, which is not easy just by right. itself. So I really think that this could be something that really moves a needle politically when we to get people to pay for this just on the opioid yeah. factor. And then if we start seeing, okay, maybe we have other niches that we can kind of put this in. We know birth control sometimes get metabolized differently by different people. They might yeah. not work. Maybe that's another mm-hmm. one. I'm not sure. But that's a way that I see this moving. Where do you see pharmacogenomics moving in this area so that it can be better utilized? Sure. So, I mean, right now, the most robust literature or most robust evidence is in psychiatry, cardiology. Uh, but pharmacogenomics is not going away. It's uh, medications that are being produced today are more and more precise. Uh, and Many of them now actually are being produced with companion diagnostics, which is actually typically um, a genetic test to determine if the medication will be therapeutic for that patient um, or if it will cause that patient adverse effects. So precision medicine is evolving and growing, and um, I believe all stakeholders are going to be forced to recognize it incorporate it and uh, help us see those positive outcomes. We want to see those positive medication outcomes. So one thing that you mentioned there was uh, psychiatric medication. I believe one of them is citalopram, if I remember correctly, that this is a big uh, kind of burgeoning thing that we're noticing with it. But you can correct me if I'm wrong there. We're also seeing some other major (laughs) players like Cleveland Clinic who are starting to use this. Can you kind of add on to that where you're seeing it in cardiology and who some of the players are using it as well as psychiatry? Sure. So pharmacogenomics uh, has been in academic settings for years. Uh, So you're correct. Uh, Cleveland Clinic, um, Cincinnati Children's, Vanderbilt University, Duke University, UNC, they are leaders in pharmacogenomics and academia, and uh, the University of Pittsburgh, for example, School of Pharmacy, they are instrumental in community application 
of pharmacogenomics. And I actually trained um, with one of the um, creators of, of their program. So, yes, academic institutions, this is, this is kind of old news for them. Yeah. Um, com- community is where the um, awareness needs to be increased, and pharmacists are perfectly poised for that. Absolutely perfectly poised for that. Why do you think that is? Just our education of it or just because the access or both? Yes, both. Both. So pharmacists have the pharmacology knowledge. They have the pharmacogenomics knowledge. They have access to patients. They are uh, trained to advocate for patients and um, what is best for their medication outcomes. Um, they are, I mean, this should no, be no different, for example, than a prior authorization for medication. So, for example, if you have a payer who doesn't reimburse for a pharmacogenomics test, um, pharmacists are perfectly poised to make the argument, the clinical argument for medical necessity um, for why that patient should receive that test so that it uh, improves their medication outcomes. And you said one of the... So yes to all the above. <laughs> okay. And you said before in kind of the lead up to this that Boeing was one of the major companies that was kind of jumping in on this. Can you explain what they're doing and kind of why they were kind of an early adopter to this? Yes. So Boeing, um, as you might expect, is very well ahead of, of um, maybe the pack. A very successful company. And Boeing realized the value of pharmacogenomics testing to the point that they offered it to their employees in their employee health program. So the company paid for the testing for their employees because they realized the value of maintaining healthy employees. Um, You know, just think about a very, very highly trained, highly skilled uh, engineer for Boeing, what does it cost Boeing or any other uh, major company such as Boeing if one of their most highly trained experts has a non-therapeutic medication outcome or an average drug event? Yeah. It costs them, you know, missed days of work. It costs them for the employee maybe to be at work but not be present <laughs> So they don't feel well. Um, Workers' comp claims. I mean, they realize that investing in this test could help them have a healthier employee population. So they they have been leaders in in implementing within within their employee health. And, you know, one thing I thought of, and maybe just because Boeing's had a, a few issues in the past few years, some of their planes and engines and what have you, is that maybe this is the stress yes. level, right? So if you're, you know, you're having engineers who are working all these long hours trying to make their planes get back up in the air again for their 737 MAX mm-hmm. or whichever one it was, they're going to be stressed out. Now, if you don't want that person to go yeah. through a bunch of medications for anxiety that mm-hmm. aren't working for them, you want to help pick one that works. Mm-hmm. So that's a... A really good reason why you'd want yeah. that because it's a top engineer and that literally the whole company's lifeline is just riding on that project and getting it fixed so exactly that's pretty yeah. stressful <laughs> absolutely and and you know let's just say that the ceo or someone in the c-suite of a large corporation such as boeing were to die from 
an adverse drug event. What does that cost a company? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and, and it's doing the right thing by the, by the employees. So when you're doing that, you know, you're giving the people who say it's the, it's the janitor, you're giving them the same access to exactly. optimize care as the person at the top. So you're really showing you just care for them mm-hmm. and you want to provide a service mm-hmm. so that they're taken care of. Absolutely. And um, I know of a, of a company in Ohio who did just that. The CEO himself actually had a pharmacogenomics test and it actually prevented him from having a negative outcome from Plavix. And he actually went back to his company and said, all of my employees will have this. That's pretty cool. I value mine. Absolutely. That's like a, that's the best story um, (laughs) of how a CEO wanted to share, wanted to share the help with his employees. So one thing I have to ask, so when we're talking about all this, we know that the time it takes for reading DNA and sequencing it and everything has sped up exponentially since the 90s and when some of these drugs were invented. How quick of a turnaround time does some of these things take if someone were to get like a uh, a test to make sure they can like pl- uh, process and metabolize Plavix efficiently? Sure, sure. So that's a, a loaded question. There's so many variables that go into that. Um, for example, Plavix, since we're on that subject, if the, um, because Plavix is typically going to be prescribed within a hospital where the patient's being treated um, from the original thrombotic event. So if that hospital has a laboratory, a genetics laboratory that can process the test, um, then they may be able to turn that around while the patient is still admitted to the hospital. Um, If the hospital relies on an outside lab, they may, may not get the test back before the patient is discharged from the hospital. Um, And this is why it's critical that community pharmacists be prepared. Uh, Be prepared for a patient to come to you who says, hey, look, I just got discharged from the hospital. They ran a pharmacogenomics test on me or they sent one out. I haven't gotten the results back yet, um, but these are my medications. And, you know, can I count on you to, to work with me and my doctor, you know, when the results come back? And um, when those results do come back, that pharmacist can be so important in that transaction to make sure that that patient if a change does need to be made in their medication, um, you know, since they were discharged, to be able to help that patient and be able to speak that language, the pharmacogenomics language. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Even if it's just being able to, you know, read it and say you're slow or fast metabolizer mm-hmm. uh, with, with this enzyme, this medication may or may not mm-hmm. work. We can try it, but, you know, come back in a few weeks and we can make some recommendations from there based off what your symptoms are. I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question. Mm-hmm. So I, I always ask people on my podcast, what laws would they change? I'm going to tie this right into what you do. If you mm-hmm. could change one law that would help make pharmacogenomics better and more accessible, what would it be? Oh, I would say that I would pass a law that says insurers cannot deny coverage for a genetic test that has the clinical evidence, the robust clinical evidence, 
to show that it does have a positive impact. It can, you know, impact that patient's um, treatment decisions. Okay. And so- yeah, sadly, you know, yeah, um, that, that would be my law because sadly, even like BRCA1 and 2, the BRCA genes, which um, are responsible for breast cancer, um, you know, legislation to make sure that those tests are paid for because quite frequently reimbursement is, is a major factor in patients not getting the testing. Yeah, obviously it's you're not going to get it if no one pays for it. We understand that. The yeah, the one thing you were talking about before was how, and this is kind of what you were alluding to, that with amitriptyline, it's okay if they're using it for, I believe it was depression, to get a pharmacogenomic mm-hmm. test, but not if they're using it for <laughs> sleep. Which the only difference is just right. what dose you need, basically. So can you kind of is mm-hmm. that what you were alluding to with some of that? Sure. So even for payers who are currently reimbursing for pharmacogenomics, the policies are rather archaic. (laughs) And by archaic, I mean that, for example, one Medicare contractor only reimburses for CYP2D6 gene sequencing (laughs) in patients who are prescribed amitriptyline, and it has to be for the treatment of a depression major depression, bipolar depression. and That's really specific. (laughs) That's very specific, and it's not up to today's standard of care for depression. Um, How many patients do you see come through the pharmacy where amitriptyline is the drug of choice for the treatment of of depression? Not very Um, many. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, we we have newer drugs today that are considered first line treatment, and quite frankly, amitriptyline is used for your other other conditions such as peripheral neuropathy or, or like you said, sleep or migraine prevention. So, yes, that eliminates a lot of people from being able to have that test paid for. Yeah. All right. So, hey, listeners, we're going to wrap this one up. But, uh, Becky, where can people find you if they want to kind of learn more about this? Since it's a little nerdy, it's a little specific, but it's super educational. <laughs> sure, sure. So they can check me out on LinkedIn, um, Becky Winslow. I'm, I'm right there. Just just search for me in the LinkedIn. I have a website also, um, www.ingeniousrx.com. And as always, you can find me on the PGX for Pharmacist podcast, which is broadcast on Apple and Spotify. So check me out on all those places. Awesome. So again, listeners, they were doing this a little bit of a hybrid episode, so I'm not going to close with my normal ending, but you can find me at yeah. Political Pharmacist anywhere, basically on social media or any uh, podcast platform. So feel free to reach out to me on there. And hey, Becky, thanks for having this awesome discussion that went clinical, went political, went financial, went a little bit every way is about pharmacy. <laughs> That's what it's all about. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Becky. And thanks again, listeners. Thank you.